Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Ari Schulman. He is the editor of The New Atlantis, a magazine we, we sort of see as, a, as something along the same profile of, of first things, um, deeply researched and, and learned not really academic, uh, too too overloaded with footnotes, if that if that fits uh, the profile you see, Ari. His writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, Commentary, and First Things, our magazine. Welcome, Ari. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, a quick question on one of the issues on everyone's mind today. You had an assessment of the COVID crisis in New Atlantis website about six weeks ago. It was entitled, Just a New York Problem. And it did what epidemiologists often do when faced with a crisis such as this one. You collect reliable data and you started to look at it in different ways. Uh, I'm sure you've been following it. Where do you think we stand now on, on the COVID issue? Well, we're in sort of a strange pause at the moment or, or a little bit of a, um, a recess, I suppose. I mean, you know, everybody can tell that uh, we are past a peak, at least for the time being. Uh, in New York in particular, the, the just grotesque death toll has uh, mercifully, gratefully uh, subsided. Um, there are little outbreaks uh, cropping up around the country. Uh, there are some hot spots right now in uh, Texas, which is where I actually am right now. Um, I think there are some in Arizona. There are some that haven't been talked about a lot. Colorado actually was kind of a bad hot spot for a while. Um, but the, the sense of urgent crisis, I think, has rightly subsided into this sort of strange stasis state where it's not as bad as it was. It also hasn't gone away. Uh, it's not like if you look at these death curves, you know, we, it's like it's not a bell curve kind of shape. It's gone from a very high peak to maybe half of the height of that peak or 40 percent of it or something like that. And I think that we're, we're doing a big kind of national experiment where we find out, can we return to normal life and just have the virus not, uh, not come back and rear its ugly head? And I can, I can offer arguments in both directions for why that might happen or why it might not. But the truth is nobody really knows. And we're, we're all about to find out. When you say that there, there's sort of a little outbreak 
in in Texas, you mentioned Arizona, Colorado. The Colorado one is is a little older. I think you implied that. Uh, is there any relationship? I mean, we're recording now uh, many many days into the the demonstrations, the protests, and, and the rioting going on over over the the Black Lives issue. Do you see any connection between the the COVID patterns and these gatherings at this point? I think it's still ever so slightly too early to find that out. I, I think if there's going to be a spike from the protests, we'll see it. It could be in a matter of days. It could be in the next week or two. But the most reliable data have a real lag. Uh, the, the best, uh, most reliable data point right now is still the number of deaths from COVID. And that lags infections by about three or four weeks. So that would take another week or two uh, to show up. So, yeah, remains to be seen. In in the states you mentioned, were these outbreaks located in cities, big cities? I'm actually not sure about that. You know, the the uh, chart that we produced, uh, this interactive map, was at the state level. I know that I've read about some rural outbreaks, but I think it has mostly been concentrated in cities. One of the things that I came across uh, about 10 days ago, I was going down to Atlanta for something. And I just checked the Atlanta newspaper to see what was going on with, with the pandemic there. And there was an article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and the headline was that the COVID, quote, swamps rural Georgia County. And it sounded like it was racing through the, the population in that county. And they did have about 170 deaths, uh, really bad. But if you read the article, you found about two-thirds of all those deaths were in two nursing homes in in the county. And is there, I, I actually asked in, in one gathering, didn't get much of an answer, but when you factor in about 40% of all the deaths have been nursing home related, how would you say that affects our understanding of the pandemic? I mean, I think that the salient question there is, how does it affect our understanding of the way that leadership responded to this and the way that the, the media and the kind of intellectual classes responded to this? I think we've seen a, a somewhat woeful problem of uh, what a colleague of mine, Brendan Fote, has called using science as scorekeeping, which is we've seen a lot of fights over the infection science in terms of trying to figure out who is right and wrong whose thesis is right and wrong, and not enough using science to try to understand how you actually combat the virus. So, uh, you know, in the early days uh, of the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of focus on a shortage of ventilators. I think that there was a, the, the, big short, the big focus was on a shortage of ventilators and on a fear about the hospital system getting overwhelmed. So a lot of the policy was focused around that. And that led uh, several uh, governors and uh, local officials to not want to have um, elderly people in nursing homes be sent to hospitals if they got infected for fear of overwhelming the hospitals. They thought it would be better to treat them in the hospitals. That turns out to have been a pretty catastrophically wrong decision because by keeping them in the nursing homes, they were probably infecting other people in the nursing homes. I think given the information available at the time, that was an understandable mistake. But we know enough now to know that the that uh, state officials, including uh, Andrew Cuomo, were given enough information, I think, by late March or early April 
to understand that the nursing homes were going to be a real, real focus for this. And I think you can kind of trace back the politics on this and see that by this point, the, the national politics and the local politics had been so gripped by this question about lockdowns that I think that the, the nursing home approach got subsumed into that debate over lockdowns. Uh, and that was, that was seen as a kind of, uh, you know, symbolic part of that, where if you had had a more nimble and prudential and kind of sensitive response at the state level, I think they would have been able to recognize early on that this was a target of opportunity, both for the virus uh, and for leaders to really take a bite out of, a, you know, a place where the virus was really going to hit hard. So I do think that they should have been able to implement different policies uh, in nursing homes. There are all sorts of things that they could have done differently. You know, if you have scarce testing resources, you could concentrate those on nursing homes, testing every patient every day uh, to make sure that you can identify patients when they're infected and really, really heavily isolate them from others. There are all kinds of things like that that they could have done and that they didn't and in a lot of places are still not doing. You mentioned the the usage of science or the understanding of science's place in, in, in policies and issues like, like this that come up, which gets to the broader mission of the New Atlantis, which was founded as a quarterly uh, out to shine a critical light on scientific and technological developments. And that, that was in 2003. And that, that's since then, has that mission changed? Has it intensified? Are the issues different in terms of scientific and technological developments, or, or has, the, has the mission been pretty consistent over time? I would say that the mission has been pretty consistent. I, I think that, you know, to some extent, what we are really doing is responding to a particular aspect of the modern project. Uh, but it is, it is such a broad aspect, this, the enterprise of science and technology, that it's, it's not something where your mission is going to be done in a few years or it's where it's responding to a transitory problem. The particular manifestations of that problem have changed. Uh, in 2003, um, the, the journal was founded by uh, Yuval Levin and Adam Kuyper and Eric Cohen, and it was very much in the model of Leon Cass and the President's Council on Bioethics, uh, President Bush's Council on Bioethics. And what it was specifically focused on was uh, issues like embryonic stem cell research and steroid use in sports and a lot of the more speculative human enhancement technologies and biotechnologies that were coming down the line. And um, the way it was actually founded, as I understand it, uh, I wasn't around at the time, was that these people were forming a reading group uh, to do readings and kind of classic texts of the founding of modern science, Francis Bacon and Rene Descartes and Vannevar Bush and people like that. And they realized that there was no dedicated public forum for that kind of exploration. What you had at the time was places like Scientific American or Wired. When Leon Cass wrote his famous essay, uh, The Wisdom of Repugnance, that was in the New Republic, right? So you could take essays that were on science and that had a critical lens uh, toward the scientific enterprise and put them into certain publications, but there wasn't a dedicated forum for that. And that was the purpose that the New Atlantis was founded uh, for. And I think that the way that they were approaching this was to uh, try to look at some of these problems of the way that science and technology is seen as an unqualified good, um, the way that it is seen as a kind of neutral or alien force that can adjudicate politics, and the way that any kind of technological development is seen as necessarily an advance for human civilization. And they were trying to be skeptical of that without succumbing to the kind of Luddite impulse. There was a lot of talk in those early days about promise and peril, right? How do we secure the promise of new technologies while avoiding the peril of 
degrading ourselves um, or of abusing human life in the search of cures. And I think that that is still foundational to our mission. Uh, bioethics questions are not quite as prominent today as they were at the time, although they, they are going to be again soon uh, with the rise of CRISPR. Uh, I think that our focus is on a slightly different uh, aspect of the scientific project right now. Um, it is more about the, the kind of epistemological question, the thing that I was just talking about, about the way that science is invoked as this kind of neutral arbiter of political disputes, the way it's, it's used as a rhetorical bludgeon, and I think the way that it also functions uh, in our society as something like the way that public intellectuals and philosophers uh, and people of letters, the role that they would have had two or three hundred years ago, science is seen as, as offering this kind of credibility to speak about any aspect of human truth. And we see that as, uh, as very degrading to the human condition. We also see it as degrading to science. Uh, we often look back to some of the early modern Renaissance sources of science and technology and also to ancient and classical sources. And you know, for them, the science and technology, well, science in particular was, uh, first of all, it was part of philosophy. You know, They would call it natural philosophy. Uh, it wasn't seen as the separate discipline from the rest of uh, humanistic inquiry. And it was seen as an expression uh, of human capacities and of human excellence. So it was really something that was robustly integrated into the human life world, for lack of a better term. And now it's seen as something much more alien and kind of conflicting uh, with the normal course of political affairs. And that's it leads to all sorts of uh, problems for political life. Yeah. And, and one, one thing I find, I mean, I have I have scientists in, in my family, uh, is they're so hyper-specialized. I mean, to, to be a practicing scientist, you really sort of identify a micro problem, and you set up your, your clinical work or your experimental work to get some solution to a hypothesis for that problem, but it, but it, is, it is very, very tiny. And so most, do most practicing scientists, do they, do they ever engage do they have the time, not only the time or the, the, the inclination, to engage in ethical, the broader ethical reflection on, on their own work? It's certainly not something that is uh, built into the institution or the discipline of science now. Uh, you know, basically the form that it takes is elective courses for science students in, you know, in undergrad and maybe grad school. And you can probably guess that the, you know, the ethical content of these courses, it's, you know, what, what people often call thin ethical considerations. It'll be things like, if you're making a facial recognition technology, is this going to have a disparate impact on minorities? You know, it'll be considerations like uh, autonomy and consent, um, informed consent, things like that. It's all of those kinds of concerns, which, you know, we don't have huge criticisms of those. We think most of these are, are legitimate things to be worried about, but they're a very narrow and thin slice. They're the kind of things that can uh, that can cash out in public language that everybody can understand. So a lot of what we are trying to do is to bring in the whole broader array of ethical concerns and ethics very broadly construed in terms of how does how do new scientific and technological developments actually change our self-understanding, change our understanding of our place in the universe and our relationship to each other. These are the things that people are really interested in in understanding about science and the things that we already invoke science to do in the public sphere, and, and there really isn't a place for that uh, in most scientific disciplines. There is at some of the great book schools and at some of the liberal arts schools, but there isn't in the mainstream scientific discipline. And yet we still 
call on scientists and invoke them in this way, right? You were talking about specialization. You know, Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist. He has done some interesting and innovative work on uh, genetics, and somehow we look to him to adjudicate the meaning of life and God and all of these other things that he's totally unqualified to talk about and obviously doesn't really understand what he's talking about. I don't have any problem with him talking about these things, but his scientific training doesn't give him any particular insight into that. And it, it pretty obviously blinds him actually to being able to speak about these things in a sophisticated way because he thinks that it's a substitute for really deep reading in those disciplines per se. What do you think are the most important scientific technological issues at the present time that most need a little more ethical or philosophical reflection? Uh, you know, there will be ones that are fairly familiar to people. Um, CRISPR and genetic engineering, I think, is a really, really big one. Um, there's a, so CRISPR is a, a recently created, it's a technique for being able to modify genes. I'm going to make sure, try to make sure I'm describing this correctly. I, I have colleagues on staff who are better with the biology stuff than I am. It's a technique for being able to modify uh, genes. And so it allows for uh, precision modification of genes in a way that we have not had a technique to be able to do before. So it basically permits precision and targeted genetic engineering uh, and genetic modification. And that has tons of implications. Um, it, you know, it could be a very, very robust tool uh, for combating genetic diseases. It could also, of course, be a tool for modifying the human germline, uh, for conducting eugenics experiments. Uh, for eliminating all sorts of weaknesses and disabilities. So it raises these very profound ethical questions. You know, if you read Lewis's Abolition of Man, that kind of vision that he's, that he's worried about, that technological power, this is really the first time that we are gaining anything resembling that power that he was talking about. It's a much more powerful version um, than uh, simple selective breeding, the kinds of tools that we've had before. Um, and it provides this, this interesting moment because this is one of the first times that you see scientists trying to get out in front of the ethical debate. They have been uh, talking about doing a voluntary moratorium on using CRISPR for something like five years so that scientists can basically convene a, a study group uh, to figure out what's going to be the ethical governance of this um, and can engage with the rest of society, with uh, public stakeholders, uh, to try to come up with some sort of socially acceptable uh, governance regime. There are a couple of precedents for this in scientific history, but it's mostly something that hasn't happened much. And I think it's a combination of scientists understanding, uh, first of all, how ethically difficult and how powerful this new technology is. But they also understand that, that they've seen the last 20 or 30 years of scientific controversies over things like stem cell research. And I think that they also are doing this move in order to kind of own this debate and be able to manage the terms of it. And that's, that's a troubling thing because the, the terms on which they are likely to conduct this ethical conversation and the institutional way that they are likely to structure it, which is having their own kind of independent body that isn't formally part of the democratic process, I'm not very optimistic that that's going to lead to a very rich uh, ethical governance. And, and do progressivist assumptions about man and, and, and nature do they reign among scientists when, when they step out of their labs and, and do broach the bigger issues? Do they fall generally on the left? I would have to, uh, to dig into the social science on that. I think it varies a, a great deal depending on the discipline. 
the last time I was looking at this, there are certain fields, I think anthropology, uh, sociology, some of the kind of softer sciences, I think, where there is a really, really large split. Uh, I think in anthropology, it was something like 80 to 1 identification of progressive versus conservative. I think when you get into the harder sciences, it's a much smaller gap. So things like biology and physics uh, don't tend to have as big of that, of that gap. Well, I'm thinking of the example that came up in late 2016. You published, were you, were you the editor? When did you come in, Ari? I came in in 2017. So Adam, was edit, uh, Adam Kuiper was editor then. So you came in a little after that paper by Paul McHugh and Lawrence Mayer on gender and sexuality studies. Yes, that's right. Were you were you fielding the the, the massive response and and massive denunciation? Did you have to you know, try to try to handle manage some of the response to that paper? I mean, I don't know if you want to rehearse the the whole episode or not, but yeah, that that had basically wrapped up, including the response to it around the time that I came aboard. So I can't speak very directly to that, although I heard a lot about it. Well, well but when you get I mean, you, you, New Atlantis has gone into some of those very delicate areas of sexuality that is one of the places where we see a pretty heavy skew to one side among, among the academics and so many organizations uh, about this. How does the New Atlantis operate in, in these delicate areas where your, your general understanding of things runs, runs against really the prevailing and very powerful opinion. I'm trying to think of a, of a general way to answer that question. I mean, one, one kind of sideways on answer to that question is, I think about us as trying to straddle a divide between academia and the public. Um, so just to put it very broadly and crudely, you know, if you were to go back and read Charles Darwin, Francis Bacon, some of the kind of classic figures in science, there were actually, many of them were, were rather beautiful writers. You could tell that they were classically educated. They were writing for a scientific audience, but they were also writing for a lay audience in a way that was intended to be, to be read and to be kind of beautiful and engaging. And there are a few scientists who still write in that way, but very few. Uh, for the most part, these academic debates are uh, not only insular, but seemingly deliberately insular. You know, we've all, all kind of encountered, this is something we deal with all the time is, people griping that we're not peer-reviewed. And I, I never know what to say Say to that, you know, First Things isn't peer-reviewed, The Atlantic isn't peer-reviewed, The New Republic isn't peer-reviewed, why are we having to deal with this question? And the, the answer is that we are broaching on this particular subject matter, science, in which the model is supposed to be scientists come up with the answers and then uh, kind of mute and passive explainers, journalistic explainers, translate them to a an eager and receptive public. Uh, and we think that this is a, you know, a not a very helpful journalistic model or intellectual model. It's not something that is particularly uh, reflective of the way that the scientific method actually works, which involves scrutiny and reproduction and being able to explain uh, things in a way that, that can be independently understood by people outside of a field. And so I think part of what's central to what we're doing is we just, we have confidence that the public is smarter and more capable of engaging in and understanding these debates than they are often given credit for, both by academics who don't want to speak to them and by journalists who tend to very much dumb down uh, or oversimplify these kinds of results. So this is why, for example, our 
articles tend to be fairly long, uh, you know, often many thousands of words. We're not doing the 800 to 1,000 word explainers that you would get in Scientific American or Wired. And we're kind of speaking to the public as if they are unfamiliar with the debates that we are talking about, but intelligent and capable of understanding them. So we stop to, to explain terminology. Uh, we spell everything out. You know, we, we think as if we're speaking to um, intelligent and well-motivated undergrads. That's sometimes the, the audience that we have in mind. And to some extent, we just, you know, we are interested in adjudicating these difficult questions and in not worrying overmuch about the kind of controversies that they are, are going to engender. If there's a specific empirical claim that's going to be advanced, like uh, sexual orientation is genetically inherited, you know, we, science offers a set of methodologies for answering that question. And so it's relevant to the public to understand, does science support that conclusion or not? What does it say? How would you go about answering that question? Uh, it, it needs to be answered. And we see no particular reason to not present the evidence that's available uh, you know, to the best of, of what we know it to say. In spring 2019, you had a forum uh, entitled The Ruin of the Digital Town Square. Uh, what, what was, what was, what, why do you have that forum? And, and what, what do you think uh, came out of that? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think we have that forum because we all of us spend a little bit too much time online and we have a sense of public discourse as having been degraded and of all of us as being kind of personally degraded by the ways that we are participating in public discourse on the digital platforms. Um, you know, the, the digital, the reason for the phrase, the ruin of the digital town square is if you look back 10 or 15 or 20 years at the, the rosy projections of the people who created the internet and created online forums, not just Twitter and Facebook, but uh, Usenext and PHP forums and so forth. The basic idea was, you know, well, information is good. Most problems are, most public problems exist because people lack information and conversation and debate and discourse are good. And so the more that you can do to create more of that, the better uh, public dialogue is going to be. And I think one of the, the attitudes that's kind of constitutionally baked into the New Atlantis is a little bit of a, a tragic sensibility uh, about human affairs, a sense that anytime somebody comes along and thinks they've come up with the, the magic solution to some problem that goes back for thousands of years, they're probably going to be wrong and they're probably going to have missed uh, some essential conflict or difficulty, even if we're not exactly sure in advance what it's going to be. And Sure enough, that seems to have been the case for social media. It's, you know, turns out to have unleashed some of the worst demons in all of us. And so we were, you know, we were hoping for, uh, I think, some sharper diagnoses of why that is. Uh, and I think we also wanted to push, and we're still working on pushing towards understanding what might come after social media as it currently exists, whether it's possible to replace it and, and how to replace it. We have a few things coming down the pipeline about that. It's interesting to contrast the things that, say, Wired Magazine was writing about the Internet in the 90s as really the breakup of everything big, you know, big media and, and all, you know, a, a million voices now would be entering the, the town square. You had an article in winter 2019 uh, by John Asconis called Silicon Valley's Smart Paternalism, smart in, in quotation marks, paternalism. Wait, wait, isn't that the opposite of what the Internet was supposed to be? H how did that happen? It was supposed to be this liberating individualistic thing. But we uh, John offers this very interesting point, which is that we switched from this very disaggregated, decentralized version of the Internet 
you know, the most tangible example of that is everybody having their own GeoCities page back in the day or their own little HTML file sitting on their server. We switched from that very decentralized model to a very highly centralized one that's actually contrary to what the founders of the internet really wanted. And that's where all content is, is tightly locked into a few highly dominant platforms. So Twitter, Facebook, the Apple ecosystem, Amazon, and so forth. And what that means is that these platforms have an enormous amount of power over structuring our information and discussion environment. And a lot of the money that they make, a lot of their business models are based on manipulating that environment in ways that are designed to get us to engage more, you know, to basically behave like rats in a cage, to click the buttons more, click the lights, click the retweets. And I think that that is, they, they had some naive mistakes about the ways that this would be enlightening to and enriching to, uh, to our dialogue and our discourse. And it's actually, it's, it's done the opposite. It has caused us to entrench more around these kind of psychological pleasure mechanisms. And I think we are you know, we are seeing the, the ruins of that around us. You mentioned how bioethics was a very important issue, uh, very topical in 2003 when the journal was founded. Uh, but you have an article, Brendan Fote had an article called While Bioethics Fiddles. And Yuval Levin had an article, What Happened to Bioethics? Did the, did the Obama administration play a role in not suppressing, but just um, turning off the bioethics question as it pressed forward on issues, say, of, of gender theory and, and identity. Was the Obama administration a factor here in the, in the fate of bioethics? I think it was somewhat. I, I think the bioethics would have died down no matter who the administration was then, simply because the hot conversations, which were embryonic stem cell research and steroid use in sports, had largely been resolved in some way or another. The Obama administration did intervene on these in some ways. Uh, the Obama administration, it, uh, it rolled back a little bit of the Bush policy uh, on stem cell research. But the conversation had largely died down by that point. I think that the most significant impact um, of that administration on these kinds of debates was the way that the administration and President Obama himself would talk about science and its role in public life. He had this kind of famous... It, part of his platform was about restoring science to its rightful place. I think this was one of his very first executive orders early on. He had a lot of these kind of symbolic moves toward science being something that can can adjudicate deep political disputes. Um, you know, he put forward an executive order at one point about using cognitive science more, cognitive behavioral science, um, which is this kind of manipulative body of research that basically tells you how to tinker, tinker with people's brains and behavior when they're not following the policies that you want them to. And that was a common kind of common rhetorical move throughout the administration, even when a lot of what they were doing was not really living up to the spirit of, of rich scientific inquiry. Uh, you know, when President Obama advanced this um, policy on stem cell research, you can debate the merits of it, but what I thought was significant about it was that he didn't really offer much of a rationale for it. There was no real clear moral reasoning behind it in the way that there had been for the Bush administration. He simply said, this is what science says we should do, which is a, a, a vacuous and rather dangerous understanding uh, of the epistemic authority of science. And so I think that, that they were fairly irresponsible um, with this understanding of science, and they have entrenched this dynamic that we have in our society where we have 
only two modes of relating to science. It's either this deferential mode, which is the march for science, the I effing love science kind of mode, Bill Nye, Neil deGrasse Tyson, or we have this overreaction to it, which is this kind of debunking and hostile mode, which is a kind of paranoid and conspiracist mindset. And these are both misunderstandings of the way that science should relate to politics. Uh, and so I, I would say that the Obama administration fairly firmly entrenched one side of that, that has probably therefore fueled that that problematic counter-reaction. Ari Shulman, editor of The New Atlantis, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.